You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Today on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, we've got Landon Mayer back for another big episode. Landon is a guide, author, show speaker, all-star, and he knows his way around a trout stream, fishing some of Colorado's toughest tailwaters. Today, Landon is going to walk us through finding and catching trophy trout. Whether your trophy is a 10-inch brookie or a 20-pound brown trout, Landon will show you the exact steps to find them, present the fly to them, and land them. Today, you'll hear Landon's three-step framework to find and catch trophy trout in any stream. Let's hop into this one and let Landon break out his trout magic. Here we go. How you doing, Landon? I'm great. Happy holidays, Dave, and uh, great to be back on the show with you, my friend. Yeah, happy holidays. I think as we're doing this, we're just a little bit before. Christmas is right around the corner. I think this is a, <laughs> this is going live in January, probably a week before uh, Bo's event. We're going to talk about that, the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. So I think people will have time, if they're listening now, to actually go out and get a ticket to this amazing event. But we're going to talk about that event. We're going to talk about catching trophy trout. We're going to talk about an update of what you've been doing and everything. But uh, yeah, maybe, maybe let's just start there with the update. How has it been going? I can't remember the last time we chatted, but uh, what's this last year been like for you? It's been amazing. Yeah, I appreciate that. And looking forward to the uh, Virginia Festival and the other fly fishing shows. It's going to be a great season starting off in, in January. But it's the last year was awesome. We had pretty even water levels, a decent snowpack. And what I've really been diving into is still the sight fishing game and hunting trophy trout. I think what I've added, the benefit for anglers, in addition to moving waters, a lot of still water hunts, too, within South Park and abroad. So I'm still thinking and dreaming about those larger browns and rainbows and getting after them now on rivers and still waters alike and new bugs with Umqua Feather Merchants and just actually completed a brand new fly tying video that's going to be released this year. And it's going to be mastery series on fly tying with headwater media group and that's going to be available to the public and it's a follow-up to my new book guide flies so a lot going on and definitely based around hunting trophy trout presentations for trophy trout and also fly selection so it's been it's been fun enjoying every minute of it still my friend that's it that's it and you've been out and typically during the summertime you're out guiding like what does your guide season look like Uh, when do you start when do you end that yeah we're so blessed in colorado so I, i literally start as early as late January and early February, depending on weather. And we'll go all the way through November. Technically, with all the tailwaters available here in the South Platte River drainage, we can we can fish all year. But I would say those are kind of the prime areas. And I love getting out and being able to meet people, shake hands, do demonstrations at the shows. So I, I typically kick things off from March all the way through early November is my, my normal guide season. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a huge loss. So basically March through early November. So right now you're kind of kicking back a little bit, getting ready for the holidays. And then, and then you come around, when's the first show? When does that first show start? The first show is going to be the fly fishing show in Boston. And that's going to be the uh, first weekend in January. And then following that's the Denver fly fishing show. Following that is Bo's wine festival, in Virginia fly fishing and wine festival. And then I'll be back on the circuit with the fly fishing shows. And also I'll be in Trout Fest in Texas this year. So I've got a great travel season ahead and probably be in nine states in three months. And the next best thing to uh, to fishing is talking fishing, right? So I'll be, right. I'll be on board doing it all. <laughs> That's right. So you love the, at the shows, you love just sitting back and do you kind of get, I mean, you have the travel. Do you, do you, first of all, do you love the travel? And then is it the conversations that keep you going? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, I I've learned to enjoy and embrace the travel, especially when you start going internationally with longer flights. And I always remember when I was young how many 
wonderful anglers and mentors like John Barr and Ed Engel and John Gearock and Dave Whitlock. You know, these people are individuals I would follow, go to shows and get so excited to meet them and find out what was new that I think it's it's important as all of us being ambassadors to do the same. So I'm I'm just as grateful and happy and thankful to be able to do it in person at a show as I would be guiding on the water. So yeah, thankful for every day. And, you know, you put the, the earbuds or the AirPods in and get on the plane and rock out to your favorite tunes, jot down some notes, prep for your presentation. So yeah, the flights aren't bad either. And just thankful to have this life, man, for sure. That's right. How do you do that? So let's just take it to Bo's show because we've been talking to Bo a lot. You, you're going to be presenting. Sure. One, one of your sessions is on trophy trout tactics. Um, yes. How do you prepare for that? Is that something that you just have dialed in that you don't even have to think about it or are you doing a lot of prep? That's a great question. You know, the cool thing about being a full-time guide, and I think the difference in the generation of angler now compared to let's even say 10, 15, 20 years ago is a lot of the individuals now are also teachers on the waters not just anglers on the water trying to relay information. So for me, I take the template I have on the water and I usually execute that right into the classroom or right into a presentation. So it flows naturally. And I've learned over the years that I like to teach in threes and I don't try to overwhelm the angler. I try to give detailed information with a symptomatic approach. And it really does work well because it's almost as if you're getting a guide trip that's condensed into an hour or two. You're relaying the detailed information that would be spread out in a full day's guide trip. And it's all at your fingertips and disposal. And I mean, to be honest, a lot of these classes and seminars are free, or if you pay for the class, it's it's a fraction of the cost of what a guide trip would be. So right. it's a huge benefit for the anglers. And that's really what I try to do is just take what I learned in a you know teach and preach on the water and literally bring that right in house on the casting demos and the, you know, the casting ponds, the fly time theaters, and also seminars and classrooms. Perfect. Yeah, and I love the threes. One of my, one of my business me- mentors talks a lot about the threes, and I think it makes sense because it is simplifying it, right? And oh, hundred percent. As we look at the trophy, let's just think of this, like finding trophy trout, right? Catching trophy trout. And there's a lot of questions we could talk about, like what is a trophy? But let's just start about, you think about whatever your trophy is, fish you want to catch. Um, you know, what we're trying to do today is that's kind of one of the questions we're, we're going to answer. And, and kind of our promise could be, like, these are the three steps to finding trophy trout. Like, what would be your, sure. what would be your step-by-step if we were going to break this down? I think the first thing is understanding what species you're pursuing. And I think trophy trout can literally be listed as their own category, basically predators. And understanding predators is understanding when to hunt them, what to pursue them with, and what's the most important way that you can approach each day. So if you think about understanding the predator, it tells you what they prefer to feed on, understanding their nature, understanding the times of year that they swim. So the first thing is timing. I think timing's everything when you start off with trophy trout. If you can time the season, you know the fish is in the water. If you can time the month and the week, you understand that there's different targets to pursue. And then also time of day, whether it be inclement weather or really nice weather, I prefer inclement weather because I know under dark skies that's when a lot of predatory fish can come out hunt and ambush their prey so timing's definitely everything presentation is more important than fly selection they both go hand in hand so that would be number two but being able to present the fly correctly to the fish without spooking the target is very important and that can be numerous things which is a lot of times what i teach on the water it could be presentations with dries nymphs or streamers But going in further detail, it can also be how do you mimic and represent the forage base of the food supply that those trophy trout are looking for? Some of these fish are into midges. They like the insect bite. Some are chasing crayfish where it's a stop, drop, and roll. It's a jigging motion. Or some prefer the darting bait fish. So food supply plays a huge part matching it with presentation. And I think the last thing is when you hook the fish, how do you pursue them in battle and how do you land them effectively? The big question I receive all the time, and that's tip number three, is how do you not reach the breaking point? And there's different techniques and strategies where we learn as anglers to apply maximum pressure. And for me, to be honest, that all started back in my 
20s when I went for broke and sometimes had buyer's remorse with ramen noodles after my saltwater trips. But <laughs> learning how to, <laughs> we've all been there yeah. for sure. But learning how to apply leverage on a tarpon really allows you to understand that the strengths from the butt section of the rod and the lifting powers from your legs. And you can literally take that information, relay it right to your trout water scenarios on a lighter tippet and rod side. But those are the three for sure. Timing, presentation, and then fighting and battling a trophy trout. Perfect. And we'll break those down a little bit more as we go. But let's take that back to, you know, as we go, the the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. And folks out there that are in that area, they could go and attend that festival next week. Um, If not, you're hitting all these festivals around. You're going to cover some of this. But when you when you talk about let's just take it to Bose, how are you breaking this down for them? Are you setting doing the same thing here? We were talking about these three things and then going in deeper into each one, or what? What is your give us a little snippet on insight on that presentation? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So the presentations are developed where I offer the angler a chance to see more visual because I believe that all of us are visual learners, some more than others. But being able to see it is seeing is believing. So in my presentations, classes, or even seminars and demos. I give you the visual reference and a good example of that would be picking up a hammer and hitting a nail on the head. That's the same exact motion as a steeple cast, but because I said it that way, you have the visual reference of that motion and you can apply it immediately and how to make a proper presentation. And that's a lot of what I can deliver and what I try to get back to anglers, whether it be an in-person experience or whether they're at a presentation or a class. I use a ton of dissolving photos, a ton of video, and the relation I have with the angler is based on what I've experienced in the past, but what keeps it new is that I base what happened this last year as my fresh content. So I may have a different perspective, you know, on how to make a presentation in 2023 than I did in 2020, so that every everything's constantly evolving and I remain a student and try to give back to students. So I think that's one of the benefits when you go to the shows. Right. That is one of the benefits. That's what's cool is that you're always evolving it, right, and tweaking it. So like exactly. what they're seeing this exactly. year you've, is based on some of the stuff you you learned this uh, this summer. And and what does that look like? Like talk about your home water. Like where are you guiding? What's your home water? And, uh, and how, you know, March through November, where are you fishing? The diversity of where I guide is incredible. So my home office, my home base is in South Park, Colorado. And to visually break that down, it's 200 miles in circumference. And within these 200 miles, you have 27 miles of public river systems and three stillwaters. All of these offer anglers potential of fish as big as 30 plus inches and mid-teens or even close to 20 pounds. The cool thing about this area is that it's constantly changing because you're dealing with not resident river fish all the time, but migratory fish. So we have tailwaters, freestones, headwaters, all three stillwaters. So when I break down every season, I'm diving into maybe one day I'm going to be on the tailwater and that's the morning session. In the afternoon, we're switching to the stillwater session. So not only do I try to give back in that perspective of understanding more and becoming a more dynamic angler because of diversity. I also try to relate that to the classroom and each one of the guide trips to help you evolve as an angler and also to understand if the rivers are pressured and crowded, there's more solitude on still waters. And to be honest, still waters offer the largest and strongest trout out of any waterway or base system in the world. So it's, it's really cool and exciting to experience that. Yeah. Yeah, and we've been talking a lot about Stillwaters, of course. I know Phil Roy is a friend of yours, and he's a friend of the podcast. He's been doing pretty amazing the <laughs> yeah. Littoral Zone podcast now as part of our network, and uh, and he's really been doing right. it. I just listened to, shout out to Phil, I just listened to uh, number eight of the Littoral Zone. He interviewed, um, it was a really awesome episode, Jeff Perrin, who who is, uh, yes. it's just, you know, it's so cool for me now because I get, as a show, I'm interviewing you, but really... Phil and some of these other people that have even a different knowledge set interviewing other people is really interesting. So again, shout out to Phil. Sure. But I love the Stillwater. So we're, we might hold that a little bit as we go for a little bit uh, later. Um, but I want to focus on rivers just a little bit because I think a lot of people first think about rivers when they think sure. about trophy trout. At least I think, what, what is it? The majority of people fishing now, fly fishing, what is, is it 80-20 sort of thing? 80 rivers, 20? I would, I would, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I've thought about that pretty hard. And Phil and I are really good buddies. He's actually my uh, 
my show wife and, and I'm his show wife. So we're, <laughs> right. we're not only roomies, but it's a, it's a, a close hey, relationship. Tell me this romance. about Phil. Tell me this about Phil. How do you keep up with that guy? Because I've hung out with him just like a couple of times. And I mean, he is just, he could go like go all day long. How, how do you keep eyes out oh, yeah. your style He's, too? <laughs> yeah, we've got the same energy. He's definitely at it all the time. And, and we're, we're even last year and the year before we started teaching classes together here in Colorado. So keep an eye out for that. But I think we both feed off of that energy. And also we have the same passion for not only the Stillwater bite, but also the passion for constantly pursuing and finding the new or the next best thing from vice to water. So right. it's, it's a good relationship. And yeah, mix in a couple of beers because he's yep. Canadian and, you know, <laughs> we're off and running. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's awesome. always fun. But. But yeah, it's, I would say, you know, like back to the 80-20, I think, let's say 10 years ago as an example, 10 years ago, I could safely say 80-20, but I honestly think now you're dealing with 70-30 or even 65, because what's happening is that a lot of anglers have realized with rivers and the challenges of COVID and population growth in our sport, more anglers on the water always changing and evolving is an angler but also the change that we have with climate like the example of that for us is the summers are extending into fall the falls are extending into winter and things have become so much warmer and so much more drastic a lot of times the river systems are 70 degrees by mid-june so if you want to continue your your hunts and pursuing fish and also being an ethical angler to remain safe and for the fish to remain safe you're almost forced to start looking in these other areas. So it's definitely changing quite a bit, whether it be high mountain lakes, reservoirs, or even larger bodies of water, the Great Lakes. You know, a lot of anglers have learned that they can continue to pursue in the warmer season, find solitude. So I think that has changed quite a bit. We all love flowing river systems, hearing the noise, seeing the fish migrate. So I don't think that will ever go away. And that's always going to be the most important for sure. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. In my, my background, I've always loved lakes. I, don't, I can't remember the first time I fished, but we have a lot of lakes out here. And, um, and so I never really, fi- I couldn't get it. Like I didn't, you know, I, cause I always thought like, yeah, everybody fishes lakes, but I think that's cool to hear that more people are getting into it now. And, uh, yeah, and that's awesome. Absolutely. Well, l- let's go back to the, so I guess the South Platte is a river I think we've talked about sure. before, but let's just use that as an example because it will help us frame this a little bit on the trophy trout. So, and I'm you sure bet. South Platte, we could probably apply to other rivers around the country, but talk about that. Let's go to your three things, timing, presentation, and breaking point. Um, so timing. So if you're thinking somebody's out in Colorado or out near your, what, what does timing look like just as far as timing in the year? How, where do you start? Sure. So time of year, I oftentimes ask my clients and the South Platte river is great because it does give you the reference. And I always tell people, if you can catch fish on every tailwater drainage of the South Platte river, you literally can catch fish anywhere in the world, especially oh, wow. technical fish and selective fish. It's a bold statement, but it's a hundred percent fact because each system of river that we we fish over here has a different look, has a different flow. Some are migratory, some are resident fish. And after traveling and fishing and guiding in Alaska, traveling to South America, going to Canada, all these different places that I've visited and pursuing larger trout. It always brings me back to the techniques that I developed and I learned from my home waters in Colorado. So the South Platte's great for that. And if you if you're breaking down timing, the most important thing to match to start off is what species do you want to pursue? Do you want to go springtime where we have rainbows, cutthroats, and cutbows? Do you want to do the fall where you're dealing with brook trout and brown trout? Or do you want to go central right in the middle of summer where you could have opportunities of both? And that's where the timing comes into play based on your personal preference. I, for one, am a huge fan of post-spawn. So post-spawn in the spring, post-spawn in the fall. The fish have already spawned. They've already done their natural dance. You're As an ethical angler, you're leaving the spawning fish alone. But afterwards, they have to replenish all the nutrients lost. So not only are they hungry, but they eat twice as much. They eat twice as fast. And they have a more aggressive nature because they have to get back to that bulk, get back to that healthy size. And a lot of times you're offered solitude because most anglers are pursuing when the fish are visible, not when the fish are more obtainable by catching them. So I think that's a great reference and understanding 
how to hunt and when to hunt and how timing really does become important. Okay. Perfect. So, so let's take that. Let's just, again, we'll pick this out. So let's, let's take it to post-spawn in the spring. Sure. So you have the high, and that, that probably varies on timing, but what's a rough, what was the post-spawn time this year? What did that look like? Oh, and was it, was it a typical year? I guess when we say typical because we have some changes <laughs> yeah. in the climate, but sure. what, what does that look like? Spawning in the spring is a little bit different than the fall. The spring transition from cold to warm is relatively fast and it really does hit quick, especially here in Colorado. And, you know, as the saying goes, wait 10 minutes if you don't like the weather because it's going to change. <laughs> and really, yeah. that's the case for a lot of our transitions in season. But the spring is great because it warms up fast. For us, a lot of times it's going to be late April all the way through early June. The fish are super aggressive. The hatches start late May, continue into the summer season. And I would say that that time frame of last week of April all the way into the last week in May, that's really a great month to concentrate on post-spawn. And once you have that timing down, then you're looking at presentation. And the cool thing about a lot of your fish when they're post-spawn or when you're dealing with trophy trout, the thing to remember is that trophy trout are relatively lazy by nature. They will expend energy, but they have to replenish it. And they're built for hunting, they're predators, they're built for speed and creativity. But don't think for a second while that fish is waiting to come over and crush a bait fish or destroy a crayfish or come up and sip in a mouse. In between, they're going to be snacking. It's just like somebody in the gym working out. They're constantly grazing to make sure they reach that protein goal every day. That's the same thing with trophy trout. So I think it's important to know that when you're presenting to these fish, presentations based on what the food supply might be for that time. So if I'm post-spawn, I'm going to use my leeches and a tractor, trail an insect or something to match that, whether it be a midge or a blowing olive early in the season or a caddis. And I'm a huge fan of delivering dead drifts and then also swinging flies. I'll mix it up. So what I teach in the course and the class is a drag-free presentation First of all, it's never drag free. There's always movement in the water, but trying to control depth and let it drift naturally with the water is huge. And then the next thing to do is add a little swing in there, just like Dave Whitlock taught us. Swing at the end, twitch at the end, make your flies come to life. That times can also trigger fish to come over and attack. But that's that's a great reference of how to make the presentation. And that's all based on, you know, the timing of year for post spawn in the spring. That's cool. So you're, what you're saying is you might do a lot of different techniques, whether you're casting upstream or across and doing sorts of things, but as it goes down through the the zone, you might turn that into a swing and, and Absolutely. do some movement and stuff like Absolutely. that. Maybe describe that. So there are more, there's more on the timing, obviously, time of day, and you talked sure. about a little bit, but let, let's just dig in presentation a little more. So so you're on the river. Let's just take it to the South Platte. And, um, and we're in the May period and it's middle yep. of May, you know, these fish are out there. Talk about the presentation with the, what the bugs you're using a little more depth on how you're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the techniques I've developed, and this is where my book sight fishing for trout came into play and the hunt for giant trout. When I, when I've timed it correctly and I know the fish are in the system, the next thing I'm going to do is read the water, which everybody learns how to do, but I'm a trout hunter by nature and I'm a sight fisherman by nature. So once I find water that I've timed correctly where I know fish are holding, then I'm sight fishing. I'm looking for targets within the water. And each one of my presentations, each one of my classes, I teach you how to see fish even when we're not on the river. And that's based on videos, based on photos and understanding what we're looking for. Once you find the target, it's like a golfer setting up a putt. What I'm going to teach you is how to make a proper delivery, not just to the river where the fish or to the water where the fish is holding. I'm going to show you how to make a presentation to where seven out of 10 drifts are going to count, meaning that the fish will see your flies. You're not just guessing by drifting in the river system itself. You're delivering on the line, just like a golfer setting up a putt to where you know your flies are reaching the viewing lane of the trout. And that really does play a big part. And once you deliver to the fish's viewing lane, then we manipulate dead drift, not dead drift, swinging flies, lifting flies, jigging flies, all of that comes into play. Right, right, right. Awesome. So, so and this is the big part, reading water. So l again, let's go back to basics. I know we've talked about this in past episodes, but 
So you're on the water, and I'm not sure how big the South Platte, how big of a river is, like width wise, in the summertime in May, or in, what's that look like? Sure. How wide is that river? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, like let's so let's break it down into four stretches that I guide, or the four stretches I'll fish. So in South Park, it's an open meadow setting. A lot of your river system is going to be 20 feet, 30 feet width and max. It's going to be fairly calm meadow setting with undercut banks, riffled going into deeper runs. If we go down to Deckers or Cheeseman or Eleven Mile Canyon, the canyons are deeper. They're a little bit more narrow, but you have a lot of depth and pocket water and you have a lot of aerated water. So it's moving fast. It's about probably 15 to 20 feet. Deckers relatively narrow as well so that can be condensed to 15 to 20 feet and then if you move further down and you start getting into some of the areas moving towards denver wildcat canyon all of those locations it can become even more narrow so i would say the average width is anywhere from 15 to 30 feet and then from there you have different depth control scenarios where you go from an open meadow setting where the eroding banks around the bend are widening the river and it's shallower or the rocky canyons where it's condensed with deeper runs and the same thing with the forest areas down at Deckers. Gotcha. That's sweet. Okay. So we got a little rough idea on that. So 15 to 30 feet and then reading wild. let's break down these threes. I love this threes that, that you talked about. So lessons. Yeah. So if you'd said three, three tips for reading water, what, what sure. would those be? Yep. So cover oxygen, food supply and in that order. So trout need cover to remain safe. They need oxygen and they need food supply. And what I can do and what I like to do is break those down in details. But if you look at a river system and you ask yourself that question, you can right out of the gate know, okay, well, this has cover because there's riffle and there's a deep run, has oxygen because the water is colder in the deep run and it's aerated from the riffles. And then a food supply, those fish can sit there on either side of the seam and consume in slower water all the food that's being kicked up. So those are the three questions I ask myself to know that that could be a productive run. Gotcha. So you come up to a run and you're looking at it and you see you see a riffle and you're like, okay, there's oxygen there and there's probably food because it's a riffle, but sure. maybe there's no wood or maybe it's just a shallow riffle, so maybe not a good place. So you're looking at the cover is, is one of the factors, whether that's undercut bank, wood, boulders, um, those are kind of the keys, right, usually? Generally speaking, but see, that's the cool part. And I'll save it for the classes to kind of keep some secret yeah. there and some zazz, perfect, some zazz, but <laughs> there there's more than that. And one thing that's important, this is huge for anglers that are listening or people that are really wanting to dive into the sport. The thing that's changed for me as a full-time guide for over 25 years now is that a lot of the fish have adapted to their surroundings and they're also evolving like we are as anglers when they evolve, these fish are not holding in the locations that we've been taught in the literature and the fishing we've done for the past four or five decades. These fish have moved to new grounds. So the areas that you look at and you're like, yeah, there's no way there's going to be a fish there. That's where some of the largest fish now are holding. So they're adapting. And I think if we look at just fish in a general respect or general view, if you look at fish, trout are amazing. The reason is that trout are very resilient. They can adapt and adjust to any environment they're living in and even conditions of water temperature. So not only are they constantly looking for areas to feed, they also survive better than other species of fish. So you mean typically we're talking about rainbows, cutthroat, um, browns, are those the three typically? Are we adding yeah, those are species in here? Yeah, rainbows, cutthroat, brown trout. You can do, you know, Mackinac, you could do, brook trout or even going to some of the char families as well. But it's it's really speaking of, you know, of speaking to a lot of the different locations and where these fish will hold. And I've I've found that with warming temperatures and river systems and climate change, a lot of these fish have adapted to where they hold and are learning to adapt to where they'll maybe be in the system in the past for their migrate up to a river, they'll be there for four months. Those fish may only be there for two months now. But it really is when they move into the system, it's a matter of finding cover. And I think for me, when I'm looking for trophy trout or larger trout, I'm not always basing it on oxygen and food supply because the fish will obtain oxygen any way they can. But the one thing they will seek out is cover. They need to be protected or feel safe from predators above. 
And if you think about it, there's so many areas in a river system to find cover and migratory fish are not resident river trout. They don't know that there's a deep run. They're coming from these massive lakes that look like oceans and the water's so deep and dark when they move into a river, even if the run's 15 feet deep, it's twice as bright to them as it would be being in a great lake. So they hold in awkward places. All right. So they're just, so they kind of find, and that typically they could be working up or down from a lake, but typically they're working upstream or how does that look in, in your area? Where are they, like if they're in a lake or a reservoir, how are they getting into the river? Yeah. So a lot of that migration is based on time of year. And a lot of it's also based on and connected to the spawn or chasing food supplies like Alaska, the rainbows come up in the fall because they're chasing eggs. And, you know, if you deal with that same respect in the fall and we come over to the States or the Great Lakes, a lot of those fish are chasing salmon, chasing eggs, but also in the same respect, they're migrating up, getting ready to spawn. So yeah, it can be based on different areas and locations, but that's forever changing. And yeah, when you're looking for cover and you're looking for locations, you're just looking for fish that are, I guess a good way to think of it are staging fish, not holding fish, but they're staging. They could be resting in the most bizarre location and stay there for one day or a week. And next thing you know, that's where you have to deliver and that's where you're looking for the fish. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So I guess some of these fish and, and I, and when we think of trophy, we can define what that is, but let's just say it's a rainbow trout and we're in this area yeah. and the a trophy is going to be, I don't know, what is it over 24 inches, 20 inches? What do you cut? What do you consider? If it's a rainbow, what is your trophy trout? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's yeah. And that's, that's the biggest question. And, and the reason like here, here, I'll answer that. And then and I'll offer another question. Somebody asked me the other day that really hit home. A trophy is what you make of it. So a trophy could be a 20 inch rainbow in a river system that could supply 25 inch fish, but you know, it's an adult fish, but it's super, super selective. It's one of the most challenging fish you've ever had to catch. And you spend all day coming back, trying different flies, different techniques. And because you challenged yourself and you, you took on the challenge, you land that fish at the end of the day. Well, that's a trophy. You did it. You made, you made the adjustments. You reached the goal. You hold the trophy. It could also be the largest fish. And for the South Platte River, I've been fortunate to see clients land with my help and on their own as well, fish up to 35 inches where that brown trout is almost 20 pounds. And that Jeez. fish cartwheeled seven times. And oh, man. You had, to, you had to run downstream screaming 300 yards and the excitement's in the air, your heart's racing, that can be a trophy. And if you go to a small creek, most of the brook trout are three inches and you land that 10-inch brookie, you may never see a brookie that size again in that creek. So that's a trophy. So it really is a trophy is what you make of it. But when somebody asked me the question the other day, they asked me this, they said, how do I know that I'm evolving as an angler on the pace that other anglers can relate to? I said, you know what? This is how I can break that down and answer that question. When you first start fishing, you get out there and you're so dang excited. You're like, man, I'm going to catch every fish in this river. And you catch all the fish you can in one day. You learn how to euro nymph and you're banging out 20, 30 fish a day because you took a course with George Daniel or <laughs> Devil, Devin Olson. And mm -hmm. then you come out and you sight fish with Landon Mare and you're landing 10 fish in a day. And then you go out with Phil to the still waters. And you know, you're traveling abroad and you're becoming a better angler. You reach a point where you're like, okay, I can do this. I'm catching numbers. I'm catching these fish. And then you come around a turn and you're like, oh my gosh, that's the biggest fish I've ever seen in here. So you start from numbers and then you evolve to the larger trout. And the biggest topic of conversation when you come back from any day's fishing, whether it's at home with your wife and family, or you're at the bar with friends, or you're at the show and everybody's talking fishing because they're ready for the season to come. The big question is, how many fish did you catch or the big fish that you landed or got away? Those are the two things that almost every angler can refer to and relate to. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So it, it all depends on, you know, your situation where you are. And yeah. So, I mean, you could sure. have, for example, I mean, steelhead's a good example or muskie or some of these species. I mean, you might have one opportunity in a day or one fish on, and that's, that could be a great day depending on where you're fishing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're out with, you're out with Rick or you're out with Blaine and you're hunting muskie and you know, your buddy's like, man, go hook up with these guys. I, I landed this giant. It was 50 inches. It was incredible. And 
next thing you know, you're, you're 12 trips deep and <laughs> you've seen a couple fish and you've touched a couple fish, but it hasn't come to hand. Right. Well, that's even more rewarding because trip 13, a baker's dozen, you're like, it's finally happened and you're holding that fish and you've right. almost got a tear in your eye and you're embracing the moment and you're there with Rick or Blaine or you're there with myself and you're dealing with the large trophy Brown. I mean, that really is yeah, what makes this sport so unique. And I think ultimately, and this is very important, it's not only doing that and experiencing that passionate moment and embracing new friends and new travels and new adventures. It's the fact that we get to see them swim off to fight another day. And that is, that's like the most rewarding thing I think anybody can experience as a spiritual person in the outdoors, you know? Yeah, that's perfect. Well said. So, so we, we talked presentation a little bit on reading water. We let, let's say we find, we found a fish, you know, this fish is maybe migrating in, you know, it could be the springtime after the spawn, you know, let, let's, let's pick a scenario. Say this fish is holding pitcher, something in your mind, it's holding under a bank or something. How, how might you give us an idea of how you're presenting that fly to the fish and what you're using? Sure. So a good example of that would be, let's, let's deal with the spring and we're going into post spawn. So the fish are done spawning. We're waiting for runoff to happen because it's a colder transition into the summer months or late spring. And we haven't had a lot of that snow melt and the fish are tucked in the boulders and rocks. They're not in the undercuts. So normally this time of year, the flows are raging, water's up, the fish are pushed to the edges. I think the most challenging scenario for an angler is before that happens because the fish are underneath structure. And I'm thinking, okay, I want to, I want to get this large rainbow. I know it's holding around this boulder. I've seen it come out. I've seen it eat. I've seen its big apple gill plate and I'm going to land this sucker. What I'm going to do is in this scenario, I'm going to rig up a mare's mini leech and I'm going to have that as my point fly. So it's a mini leech jig and anchored fly. And above that, I'm going to trail off one of my tube midges or my sink at spinner blowing olive. Instead of casting and dead drifting to the rock or instead of stripping and acting like I have a streamer, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cast above the rocks allow my flies to drift towards that structure point. Once it reaches the structure point, the first thing I'm gonna do kind of Euro tension nymphing style is I'm gonna drift it in between the two boulders or I'm gonna drift it along the edge. And maybe that fish will take or that's enough because they'll see the jigging motion of the mini leech jig and it's gonna trigger a take. And if it's a really bright sunny day and that fish isn't willing to take, then I'm gonna jig my fly. So it's gonna drift through the same zone and I'm gonna jig it and man, oh, it's gonna come over and crush it. And let's say that doesn't happen. Then my third shot is I'm gonna drift into that zone. I'm gonna jig the fly, but then I'm going to escape it. I'm gonna twitch it to make it look like it's an escaping meal. And then wham, the fish hits. That's how as an angler, you're seeing water, you're reading water after you've timed the day. You understand that your delivery is in the zone where the trout is. But instead of thinking conventionally dead drift, strip and retrieve, you're thinking outside of the box. You're giving three different presentations to try to trigger a response. And all of my leeches I developed with Uncle Feather Merchants are related to presentation. So my presentation is important because in the past, I used to think the only way to get the predatory strike is to strip a streamer and Kelly Gallup streamer gets annihilated by a large brown. That still does happen, right? But a lot of times in conditions when the water is lower, the fish can't chase, I want to get the same reaction. And that's where leeches come into play because it's always leech season. Oh, right. Leeches are everywhere, especially in a tailwater. Is that the case? Yeah, tailwaters, still waters all over the globe. I, I think it was my fifth year in guiding, I decided... I need a confidence fly, man. This is crazy. It's challenging. I've tried eggs. I've tried worms. I've tried scuds. And they're seasonal. They're also based on water flow and supply. The only hatch that's happening year-round that I know works are midges, but fish aren't always willing to eat a midge. And sometimes the larger trout needs something bigger. They want the steak. They don't want the appetizer. So Understanding that is why I developed the leeches with umquas. That became my confidence pattern. And I'm happy to say now that many anglers across the globe 
are finding confidence in my flies with the leeches because they're understanding that same concept. It's always leech season. And if you adapt those two in the spring, now you have a leech which attracts the fish. Sometimes they'll eat it, but let's say they chase it and they're like, no, nah, not really. Then they turn and they see the point fly as a midge. And they're like, okay, midges are hatching, bam. So you're, all, you're delivering two opportunities while attracting the fish at the same time. That's awesome. Yeah. So you got the, you got the attractor, which can work the leech it's, it's there, but then you got your fly depending on the season, which is, you know, hang out. And how do you typically talk about that? How you do your dropper or your leader setup real quick? Yeah, that mixes up so much. And, and, you know, with the classes and the presentations, we'll break that down. So what I like to do when, if somebody's going to Bose festival in Virginia or the Texas show or the fly fishing shows in other States or trout fest, if anybody has a chance to visit with me in my presentations or my classes, I'll break down different rigs based on the discipline. So I'm not just doing one rig for one discipline, meaning nymphs. If I'm doing a nymph rig, I'll show you three different ways to rig. If we're doing dries, I'll show you three different ways to rig. And if we're doing streamers, I'll three, show you three different ways. But I don't just stop there. It's not me showing you you also learn how to present the fly. So in addition to learning how to rig, learning what flies to use and make a presentation, now you have and you're equipped with the tools to go out on your home waters and give it a shot. And that's why some of the best advice I ever learned based on shows was from Ed Engel. And Ed told me, and he's been a mentor and somebody when I started guiding in 1997, he's become a really good friend of mine. And what Ed told me, he said, you know, hey, Landon, when you're getting on the show circuit, it's we all become it's like a circus. It's like we're all carnies and we become <laughs> right. one big giant family. Right. We're all yeah. dealing with each other, rooming with each other, learning each other. But he said, you know, if I go to if I go to the New Jersey show and I'm from Colorado and Ed lives about 15 minutes from me here in Manitou Springs, Colorado, he said, I, I learned quickly. I can't just go over to the East Coast and show them how to deliver flies. He said, I had to come out here and actually fish their home waters so then I can relate my techniques and I can combine them with the techniques I learned there and understand how I was effective. So I had the perspective from my home waters and my teachings and they evolved by learning the waters. So for me, the other advantage the anglers getting from the shows and from my presentations and talks is I've traveled. I fished with Blaine in Tennessee. I went to meet George and fish his home waters in Pennsylvania. And the reason I traveled was to be a student, learn their ways, learn those waters, and then show how that all in combination can come together and mold and the techniques can be evolved and, and understand how to be more successful using them. Nice, nice. And that's, that's what we're hoping to do too. You know, we're doing a little bit of the travel and trying to get people connected out there with folks like you. So this is good. Um, so exactly, I guess, yeah, you know, that's so, great. so one way you could do it, and I guess in this example, you could have a, a mini leech tied and then do you do maybe off the shank, you, you tie just a, one of those midge midges off the, uh, the shank of that leech. Is that one way to do it? Yeah, so absolutely. So, um, the reference of the leech is a good way to think of those. If I'm using the mini leech jig, that really did spawn from the Great Lakes and Pyramid Lakes and, and doing some of the Euro nymphing on the South Platte River and, and also on the East Coast and the Spring Creeks. I like to tie the mini leech jig with a clinch knot as the point fly. And then above that, I have a tag and the tag can be weighted or unweighted. If I'm going deep, I'll have both weighted flies where I can jig or dead drift. If I'm fishing shallower water, I'm going to use the unweighted leech as my lead fly, and then a weighted fly is the point or an unweighted fly is the point. So if I'm doing leeches deep, I'll use an improved clench knot and attach the mini leech jig as an anchor fly, which is balanced in deeper water. If I want to swing a fly or I want to use a dead drift concept or technique, I'll use a loop knot and I'll attach my mare's mini leech, which is unweighted. So those are two ways I'm delivering leeches, which I think it's important to get the fly to the fish, but also to remember, if you haven't seen a leech swim, it's like a racing ribbon. It's unbelievable. Like these things move so fast in subsurface conditions that, yes, they can be dead or dead drift, but a lot of times they're moving with speed. That's why swinging and jigging really does come into play to match that movement, to, to relate to how the fish are seeing their food 
and why they're going to consume it. Perfect. Yeah, this is great. Well, and like we said, the cool thing about this is, is we, we people can go and, and connect. And you know, another shout out to Bo. We're going to um, you know keep continuing. And you are you now remind me again. Are you going to Texas as well, or is this just Virginia? Yeah, no, I'll be I'll be going to Texas. So my schedule starting in January is Boston and Denver for the fly fishing shows, Bo's uh, wine festival and fly fishing festival in Virginia. Following that, I'll be in Atlanta, California. And following that will be Texas for Trout Fest. And then after that, I'll be in Pennsylvania. And then after I end the the travel for the seasons in early March, I'll be back on my home waters in Colorado. And if you you go to my website, landandmareflyfishing.com, there's a newsletter. You can also see this listed on my Instagram and Facebook, at landandmareflyfishing. And I'll be putting up the schedule here this week. And Letting everybody know if I'm in their neck of the woods, come by, say hi, talk fishing, check out the shows, attend the classes. I'm looking forward to meeting everybody and uh, sharing the info that we did and even more extensive from today's podcast. This is great. And and I'll definitely be meeting you there too as well. And everybody listening (laughs) now, if they meet up with you at Virginia or any of these festivals, we'll make sure they come up and let you know they heard you on the the Wet Fly Swing podcast here. So that'll that'll be great. Um, But let's tee up one more before we get out of here. Um, So we talked timing, presentation. Again, everything you're going to cover in depth of the shows, but let's talk breaking point. That's something that I don't always think about. That's the third tier of this finding, you know, trophy fish. Uh, what, What is the breaking point? Yeah, the breaking point is the point in which when you have a large trout on, the fish breaks off because all the pressure is put on the tippet and it's not absorbed by the angler's motion or movement or absorbed by the powerful rod. And I think it's important when we deal with the breaking point to remember the key factor is the hook set or understanding that the first 30 and the last 30 seconds of the fight in my opinion, are the most important time frames because at the beginning, if you overapply power, bang, the fish breaks off. At the end of the fight, if you overapply power, bang, the fish breaks off. And also in reverse, if you don't apply enough power, you don't hook the fish correctly. And if you don't ena- apply enough power, the fish can spit the fly. So a tip for that, which I've developed over the years, is I don't think of it as a hook set. I think of it as a hook lift. So the fish is already taking the fly. You reinsure that penetration by lifting your rod to apply maximum leverage or power. If I over apply power and I build dance it, bang, that fish is going to break off. And a lot of times I'm dealing with anglers that come from larger river systems on a float trip in the Missouri River in Montana. They're using two or three X you can waylay on a fish. Or I deal with people that are using 20-pound tests, and at the end of the fight, they can horse the fish in when it's tired. But a lot of times when we deal with trout, you're dealing with lighter tippets. You're also dealing with larger mouths and fangs. And if you over-apply or you don't apply leverage in certain directions or angles, that fish can break off. So the tip is when you lift, don't break the plane of your shoulder. If you were to point your arm straight out to your side, like you're getting ready to do jumping jacks, so it's straight off to the side, left and right, that's the plane of your shoulder. If I lift my rod and I rotate my body too far backwards, all the pressure from the rod goes down to the tippet, my rod can't flex anymore, boom, I reach the breaking point. If I break my wrist when I come up and the rod tip breaks the plane of my shoulder, the rod can't flex anymore, the pressure goes to the tippet, the fish breaks off. Instead, what you want to do is stop in front of the plane of your shoulder and your arm becomes a shock absorber for all the power and the run supplied by the fish. Wow. Okay. So the plane and the plane being, like you said, do the jumping jacks, put it straight out. So it's parallel to the floor. And then you're saying you don't want to lift your rod above that. It needs to stay at that level or lower. Yeah. In front of the plane. So you can lift up but just don't break, don't break your wrist to where the tip of the rod is pointing directly behind you. So when you lift up, your arm becomes an extension of the rod and you're elevating your arm up, almost like you're getting ready to raise your hand in class to ask a question. 
Yeah, I see. Okay. So, and, and yeah, the, and if people, again, you, you probably go into a little more depth on this and have videos and things sure. like that. Could they, Absolutely. could somebody, and that'll be at your website. Do you do any, like, you must have some videos or where would somebody go right now if they wanted to look at what we're talking about? Yeah, great question. I appreciate you bringing it up. So a lot of my teaching information is through my books, which are available through my website, landandmareflyfishing.com. I have a wonderful video I made two years ago with Headwater Media Group titled Mastering the Short Game. That's available for purchase and download on Vimeo. It's 60 minutes in length. We filmed in Argentina, Colorado, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee, and I break down a lot of my tips, techniques, and strategies there. And then in addition to that, coming to the shows and learning it firsthand and up close and personal, that's a great way to really add value to anything you obtain. And I always try to relay this in information for the shows. And I know the younger generation, my son, my daughter, anglers coming up in the world, everybody learns online. We learn a lot by viral technology. Don't forget, though, the value that you receive in person. So all those questions you have when you watch the video, all the thoughts in your mind like, oh, that's a great technique. I wonder if he or she does this. You can ask those in person. So if there's a show near your hometown or there's an opportunity to go up and meet somebody, that's, that's how I learned and took it to the next level when I was younger. And I encourage the younger angler, a new generation and our future in the sport to do the same thing. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that is the power of the cool thing in this day and age. Like right now, we're doing this podcast. We're doing a, yeah. I think, a good job of you know providing people some tips. But again, if they want to take it the next step, like we said, you know, shout out to Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, and uh, and and we'll put links to the show notes to all of this as well as the other stuff you have going. Um, so sure. Be, before we take it out of here, um, so the breaking point. Let's just. Keep, I love the three again. I think I, there's probably some super smart person that came up with that, but that's just like a, <laughs> or maybe it's a basic law of nature. No, but, um, I think so, it's great. So, Great. But the breaking point, so what are the three, if you had to say, what are the three within the breaking point uh, categories, topics? Yeah, so I, I think the first is the hook set or lift. So that's number one when we talk about the breaking point or to prevent it. So don't overapply pressure when you hook set. Think of it as lifting to apply leverage. The next is allowing your arm to become an extension of the rod. Allow your arm to be pulled down and lift back up like a spring. We're absorbing the power of the fish. We're not stopping the fish from its movement in powerful ways. And third, always, always, always net the fish head first. Don't oh, net it tail nice. first. Don't stab in too quick because just like if you're a pilot in Alaska, you always fly into the wind. Don't risk the tailwind. Don't land with that wind at your back. It could lead to disaster. It's the same thing. When it comes to fighting trout, you may land a fish head first 56 times and the 57th time you decide, oh, I'm just going to go in their tail first. And that fish thumps its tail back and forth three oh. times and it's gone. It breaks go. off. Awesome. So always think about netting the fish head first would be the third. Love it. Love it. Yeah, that's a huge tip. Awesome. So. So we're doing good here. Um, I think that uh, I think we might leave some of uh, some of the rest of this for for the show season. But um, I'm going to sure. take it out here really quick. Just a quick little our rapid fire round as we get out of here. And 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 again, I think that um, it's going to be cool to meet up with you and see this in person because I'll be out there kind of uh, fanboying you like everybody else, trying to get you know more of the content from you. But um, what else did we miss today? If you think about trophy trial, anything else you want to? give a shout out to that people can really think about in the next between now and show season. Absolutely. Yeah. Just re remember this. We all learn in many different ways and we all have a preference in how we learn, whether it be reading literature, whether it's visual, seeing it on the water, whether it's hearing it when you're listening to the uh, wet fly swing podcast on your way to work and the great work that you've been doing with the show. Remember that you find success from failure you're not going to land every big fish you encounter. Not every fish is going to take your fly. It leaves you going home that night or driving back from the trip, wondering, it's spinning in your head. Embrace that. Allow that to become fuel, to be creative, to know that the challenge is still out there. That fish still is in that run. And there is an opportunity for you to catch Billy the Badass Brown. We just have to understand that defeat also receives rewards. So think about it that way. It's not always going to happen, but don't give up, hit the reset button, 
and just know that you you can succeed any day you're on the water. Perfect, perfect. And so I got a couple of random ones. We're gonna we're gonna take it out of here. And uh, we talked books a little bit. Give us a. Did you talk about your your main books? Uh, we wanted to give a shout out that maybe could take this conversation a bit further. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So the books that are available are through the website. And I've been very fortunate to work with some of the best editors and publishers in the world. Jay Nichols, Ross Purnell, Stackpool Books. They've, they've done a great job. Tom Pirro, Wild River Press at the beginning. The books that are available now are Sight Fishing for Trout, 101 Trout Tips, Colorado's Best Fly Fishing, The Hunt for Giant Trout, and then Guide Flies, which during COVID, I decided to take on the challenge of 725 macro photographs taken at home in the studio. And each one of my flies are step tied. You learn rigging, you learn presentation, and they're all available through the website. They'll all be available at the show. And it's really, it's just been such a blessing. And, And I'm living the dream because I can relay the information I learn on the water. I give back on the water, put it in the text and, and really, you know, find the success. And for me, the gratification every day is being thankful for what I do. But most importantly, is watching the excitement of anglers succeed on the water. And that that truly is contagious. And I'm thankful for it. That's awesome. And out of those books, what is, for a trophy trout for this conversation, is there one that really sticks out to say, that's the one you got to have? Man, that's that's hard. I would honestly, <laughs> they all, that's they a hard all apply. question. Yeah. They do. I think the title for The Hunt for Giant Trout really does stick out. It's it's based on 25 locations in the U.S. to catch a trophy. So even even going flying 27 hours worth of flight and drive time down to the Cape to chase Sea Run Browns, I can honestly say that, yes, you could catch a 20-pound fish there, but you could do the same within the United States. You don't always have to travel abroad, and I think that's important for anglers because it gives you hope to know that while you travel for destination, a lot of this can be found at home. And there were wonderful anglers that contributed their flies and information to the different river systems in that book. So I think the hunt for giant trout and the new one with guide flies and guide flies is related to the leeches we discussed on the, in the podcast today, information on rigging and presentation. So I say those two are really probably the key focal point when it comes to hunt for giant trout and and guide flies being that's a connection to the larger trout. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. And a couple of random ones here. One, I'm always thinking I see you out there sometimes like uh, with the exercise stuff, puffing iron and things like that. So tell yeah. us, yeah. you mentioned protein goals. What, where is the exercise for you? Has that always been part of your, your life or is this something you've really got into later? Yeah, I appreciate that. I've, I've always been very active and healthy and I've exercised my whole life. And what I realized is being that everything I do is within the sport of fly fishing, including most of my hobbies, it literally consumes me. I love it. I eat, sleep, and breathe it. In addition to that, and dealing with trophy trout, I also thought to myself, I'm going to obtain some personal goals and I want to do some physical things. Knowing that I want to do this the rest of my life, health became a huge factor for me when I turned 40. And I thought, you know, I want to be able to do this without pain. I want to be as strong as I can possibly be. And I also wanted to challenge myself in dealing with the diet of a trout all the time, dealing with the exercise of the fish all the time and fighting them. I was like, man, let's let's try to take this to the next level in my physical physical being. So it's it's been an 18-month run now in the gym straight and oh, wow. getting after it. And yeah, understanding how to lift, how to become stronger, proper form. And, you know, the biggest thing I learned from that, and I'll share this with all the different people listening or people that are attending the show, you see 70% of your gains are all based in the kitchen. So it's not always getting out to the gym. It's not always the physical action. If you live a healthy life and you have a healthy diet, your body will reflect that with exercise. And it really has been something important to me. It's been spiritual. It's been my therapy. And addition to fly fishing. And I'm happy to share that with with people and expose them to another side of Landon and another side of my personal life that I think is exciting. And I encourage other people to get there as well. If you feel like you're lacking in that department or you feel like you could do better for yourself, just know there's opportunities out there. And 
any day that you wake up, you can literally change things by just flipping the switch and making yourself an active lifestyle and active person. So it's always it's always trying to encourage others to do the same. But it's been a great journey and a great ride, man. And I'll uh, I'll continue on, and I hope That's everybody cool. else does as well. What, what is the what would you give as one little first step or tip? Somebody sitting there, maybe they maybe they consume a little too much of the the food or the the drinks. You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what is the first step you can? I mean, obviously you've got the gym, you got all sorts of things. But what do you tell sure. somebody that's like, man, I I'm not feeling great, my back's hurting a little bit. Where do I start? Where, where would you point somebody? Yeah, you know, I I think well, we'll just give three tips. I think a cool tip that I learned that I used to never do is stretching. Stretching oh, yeah. is so important. And motion is lotion for the body. So stretching before you work out is incredibly important. It warms you up. It stretches. It prevents injury. It allows you to target those muscle groups more effectively. So I encourage everybody, stretch. Always get motion in the morning and encourage yourself to do so. When you're talking about workouts, and this is, this is key because I did this for years as a full-time guy. I was like, the heck with breakfast, man. I got my coffee. I'm hopping in the ride. Boom. Let's get this. Let's go. I don't have to eat. So doing that year after year after year, what I realized is that your body, if you exercise and you don't have proper nutrition, will literally eat the muscle away that you're trying to gain. So what we need to do is understand how much we need to consume. And when you're consuming protein, it's insane, Dave. So I'm a 180 pound man at six feet tall. I have to consume 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per body weight per day to allow myself to see gains. So that includes chicken, eggs, ground turkey, protein drinks, carbohydrates, all of that throughout the course of the day. So you want to get up in the morning and they call it breakfast, but it's really break fast. You want to break out of your routine. You want to consume the body's nutrients to start the day. So that's tip number two. And I think tip number three, this is important. This is huge, especially for all us strong guys with a lot of pride out there. Form is more important than weight. So if you have proper form, you're isolating muscle groups. If you're throwing weight around, yes, you'll get stronger. You'll see some results, but you'll also encourage injury, but you're not reaching failure and full potential of tearing apart the muscle and then replenishing and rebuilding the muscles. So that's important as tip number three is always concentrate on form, get that dialed in before we start to go too heavy in the gym. Nice. Well, this is this is awesome. This is a I see another episode <laughs> landed of an exercise. Yeah. You got it. You got it dialed in. Good. So yeah, it sounds like stuff, uh, do you have a coach of yourself? Do you have like a guide, an exercise guide of yourself, nutritionist, or do you, have you just taught yourself all this? You know, it's um, Dr. Mike is where I learned my diet. Um, You can see him online on Instagram, but Dr. Mike broke it down. I remember very specifically, I woke up one morning and he showed the public by making and, you know, he didn't consume it, but he made it to consume his breakfast. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This man had yogurt with fresh fruit, right? He had four eggs. He had a bowl of oatmeal. He had a protein drink and then he consumed, he consumed strawberries and bananas. And I'm like, sounds great. I I called it the King breakfast. I'm like, are you serious? So I started no bacon, no no bacon in that. You hear that breakfast, there's no sausage, no bacon, right? Yeah. So, and then, yeah, well, and here's, here's the cool point of, and here's the tip on bacon. So he did the following episode have bacon, but he had Turkey bacon. And I don't know about you, but you know, somebody makes bacon and sometimes it's like, three pieces of steak. I'm like, this is huge. I, know. I don't need this much bacon. No. So what I do is I get turkey bacon. I put it in a paper towel and I microwave it. And the microwaves in about three minutes. It's super crispy. It's light. So you can add bacon to it as well. But the other thing I've realized, and I did this with a good friend, Jay Nichols in Pennsylvania recently. He's like, have you heard the podcast? And this goes back to always remaining a student where the scientist breaks down protein and how protein works in the body, the different proteins from plant to food or to animal and breaks synthetics, he breaks them all down. What, what he said in this episode, it blew me away. The big question for everybody who consumes a lot of protein is how much can you consume or how much will your body obtain every time that you eat protein or you ingest or drink protein? And a lot of times it's belief is 20 to 30 grams. That, he said that's about right. 
But the one thing he did say is the very first meal of the day, whether it's eight o'clock in the morning or midday, if you have a midnight shift and you wake up at noon, if you consume up to 100 grams of protein in your first meal of the day, your body will absorb the 100 grams of protein and utilize it throughout the course of the day. So that's a huge tip because to reach that goal of 300 grams of protein, you can bang out 100 of that with your first breakfast right away and if you skip it you're like a behind the battle all day long you're fighting again yeah yeah and there's so many i mean you know the kids go through reels and the younger generation look at reels on tiktok instagram facebook youtube so i started doing some of that oh you did and next thing you know (laughs) my my phone's consumed by it yeah right (laughs) right exactly that's cool what i do what i do is I, i break down muscle groups and i'm constantly looking at reels well You'll reach a point in exercise where you plateau. You've been working out for six months. You're like, man, I look like Superman to myself. I'm feeling great. I look great. I look like Superwoman. I feel great. I look great. And then you're like, man, I'm not seeing any results. Well, you have to keep your muscles and your body confused because all of our bodies adapt by nature, right? So if you're changing, let's say you do three bicep workouts and those get to the point where you've done them for three months straight. Literally look online, go on Instagram, go on your reels, check out new workouts for your biceps. In the next three months, do three completely different bicep workouts and boom, you've broken past your plateau. Perfect. Awesome, Landon. Well, this is a great conversation. I think that, um, you know, there's some other people out there doing this. I, I think of like Tom, uh, uh, Tom Roland, right? He's got a big yeah. exercise thing going. And and we have Absolutely. actually, shout out to Cody, the uh, Pain-Free Outdoors. He was on this podcast, talked a lot about stretching. And we're going to bring him back on because I think nice. that... You know, what I find is that like, like why you're doing it, we're all, we all want to fish our whole lives. You know, when I'm 90, when I'm 80, 90, I want to be fishing still, you know, and I think totally. that that's the goal totally. is that the more that you stay in shape and do the stuff you're talking about here, the better we're all going to be. So I uh, appreciate that, Landon. We will, uh, we'll send everybody out. I guess today, LandonMayorFlyFishing.com. We've got, we mentioned many times all the shows you're heading out to. So, um, so yeah, man, this has been a great episode. I'm looking forward to uh, definitely seeing you in person and until the yes. next one, thanks again. Hey, thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate you. Appreciate all the listeners. Happy holidays. Looking forward to show season. Thanks to Bo. Thanks to Ben Faremsky, Chuck Faremsky. Thanks to uh, Bill Marshall, Trout Fest, and everybody. And most importantly to the fans, I, I appreciate and understand and most importantly respect that I wouldn't have this career if people didn't believe in me. So appreciate all your support over the years and looking forward to seeing everybody. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.